are going to work through a pretty interesting text today. Um, this is probably going to be the most that we have read in a single setting in church ever, all right? We are going to read, believe it or not, two full chapters. So um, just get your heads together, get prepared for that. We're going to be reading 1 Samuel uh, 21 and 22 today. And so there are some interesting things in this text, these texts rather, but this sermon, which is titled Beauty from Ashes, actually might be the most accurate title I have ever given a sermon. Um, specifically, it may be the most accurate title for everything that we end up seeing in the Bible as a whole. It is what we believe to be one big picture of God taking the rubble that we've made because of our sin and then making it beautiful. We all likewise personally know that all of our lives have probably been one giant mess. But somehow, God in his grace, God in his providence, has sifted through that mess and made our lives beautiful. And so what we're going to see is that God has sifted through that, but I said somehow, but we know how. We know that it's not by accident. It is not as if things are messy and God doesn't know that it's going to be messy and then he has to come clean it up. It is that he is actually the one who is using that mess so that he can be the one who beautifies it. Today we're going to be reading a lot of mess, all right? It's going to be messy. It's going to be hard to get through. It's going to be darn impossible, impossible to even understand. But we're going to have to work through it. And so hopefully when we get through the weeds and all the evil and the wickedness, we will slowly see gradually the image of Christ emerge. So let's start with 1 Samuel chapter 21. Let's be ready to read. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet him, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone? And no one with you. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on your hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is only holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, and he was an Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not a spear or a sword for hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you take that, take it, for there is none that but that here. 
And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did not they sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he returned his, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to the king of his servants, Behold, you see that man is, this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter, bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left him with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the land of the forest of Herod. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree, and on the height of, with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards, Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you may that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait at this day. Then Doeg and then he then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and made provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the, then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he is risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all of your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die, Himalek, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn. 
kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, the son of Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, just for the word immediately, God. We thank you that we can find so much truth in the word, so much relevance in terms of our own lives, God. It is easy for us, Lord, to to get caught in the weeds, to forget that there is a beautiful picture that you are painting for us in our lives. So, God, our prayer is that as we read this text today, that you will show us, even in our own lives, the way that you are working out the mess in our lives, that you are taking what looks to be ashes right now, and you are making it beautiful. Help us see that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so first of all, I told you we were going to read a lot. Second of all, I told you it was messy. I mean, this is, this is really messy, like extremely messy. And we're going to do our best to try to make sense of all of it. Now, as a pastor, I would love to be able to make sense out of this text immediately. But this one isn't easy by any stretch. This is one of those that even me um, working through this is, is complicated. It's complex. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly what the meaning of these chapters are, but let me help you pinpoint it. Of all this, I think it will be a reminder of us eventually when we get to the end of it that God's word is true. Woven delicately in this text is the subtle, sovereign work of our sovereign God. Where are we in the Davidic narrative here? Well, here David is still on the run. He flees from Saul once he finds Samuel, and again he goes to Jonathan. And now this time he comes to Ahimelech, who is the priest at Nob. Now that is really important for us, and we're going to find out why that's important for us, but we got to flesh it out first. First of all, we are not seeing, by the way, this beautiful picture that had been painted of us for David. We are not only for the first time seeing that his actions are deceptive, but they are manipulative and even dangerous. I want you to look at what happens here. He comes to the priest, and when he came to him, the Bible mentions that Ahimelech trembled. He's frightened. Well, why is he frightened? Perhaps it's because he knew that he was on the run, but he tells us that he didn't know that. Or that he knows that he is a good friend of the king. And if he comes down there with any business, it is probably not going to be good business for him. He's so afraid that not only does he ask him why he's there, he says, why are you alone? 
See, even Ahimelech knew that if you were actually sent of the king, it will be an unusual occasion that you will not have other men with you. But what does David do? David lies and tells him that the king actually sent him there regarding a private matter that he couldn't even disclose to the priest. And then he asked him for some of the bread that he had. Now, let's talk about why this is different than what we talked about prior. Remember, I told you when Michal and when Jonathan lied to Saul that that was permissible in that time because the threat of their life was against them and that there was a remarkable evil that they were trying to prevent from happening. Therefore, they lied and it was permissible. This is not the same. Nobody's coming right after him. Nobody's even near him. Yet he uses this opportunity and he lies, but he doesn't just lie. He lies in a way to leverage to get the priest here to do something that he normally would not have done if he had the full information. Remember when I talked about what that commandment means about bearing false witness where you're putting someone in a dangerous position with your lie? That is exactly what David does here. This is a different case. And I want you to know in fact, by lying, he is assuming he knows what Ahimelech would have done, even if he had told the truth. Y'all, this is the same thing that we've talked about in Bible study, that when they lied, when Rebecca and Isaac and Abraham, when they lied to these kings about their wives because they were like, hey, you're fine. They know you fine. And when you see when they see us, they're going to kill me and take you for a spouse. So they said, let us tell a lie so that my life will be protected. In that case, you are presuming what someone would do without having ever given them the opportunity to actually do what was right and honorable in the first place. Not only is that deceitful, that is probably the worst kind of lie there is. David is no different here either, by the way. He never gave Ahimelech the chance. He completely manipulates him. He says that he was sent there by the king because he knew if the priest believed it, that it would be an impetus for him to let him stay and for him to have some of the bread that they have. Now, though David is not yet the king, we are at least for the first time starting to see the evidence of the cracks in his armor that are going to plague him later on when he is the king. And there is a really poignant moment, and I woke up this morning like 2 o'clock, and I usually would look at the sermon, and it hit me this morning concerning that sword. He says that the only sword that I have available for you, David, is the one that you killed Goliath with. And I was wrecking my brains, like, why would that even be significant to be mentioned? But this is the way I think this should be interpreted. It's like, yeah, here's the sword from when you used to trust God. You remember that? You remember when you had to face a John and you trusted God for that? Well, that sword is here. <laughs> Y'all should know by now that my undergrad is in history, but one of the things that you learn early on when you really study history is that even history is written with bias. Most of the victors write the history, so they tell it from their perspective. 
People are painted in certain favorable lights so that we may think that they are more benevolent than they actually are. One thing that you notice, however, in the Bible is that outside of Jesus, there are no heroes. Outside of Jesus, no one is protected. Nobody is safeguarded. Nobody is painted in a picture or a light than they weren't actually in. In the Bible, we get the real, we get the raw, we even get the uncomfortable facts about people, and they're not hidden from us. See, when we look in the Bible, almost every major player in the Bible has glaring flaws. They are not these flawless instruments, but rather they are broken instruments that are often living out of tune. Not only is David not immune to that, y'all, neither are we. Listen, personally, our stories, if we will be honest, are filled with moments or even years of disorder and perhaps even indecency. They are not perfect pictures of sanctification. No, they are filled with progression and regression, growth and atrophy, highs and lows. I remember in 2018 when the Patriots won the Super Bowl that year, I went and saw them play. It was the first time I was ever able to see them play in person. And that was perhaps the year that I thought was the least likely they would win the Super Bowl. In fact, the game I went to was terrible. They played a team that they should have whooped, and they got whooped by them. And I actually remember that year, their wins weren't about that much, but their losses were always ugly. They were terrible. They looked almost uncompetitive against another NFL team. Yet somehow, in February, they were holding up the Super Bowl trophy. And I think that season was especially unique because I also remember the year that they looked unbeatable. I remember in 2007 when they had a perfect record, but it didn't end well. Though they were flawless for 17 games, 18 games, that 19th game they lost. And it was the most important one. And I realized in a lot of ways that 2018 season is like the life of the believer. Our wins don't always look that great, and our losses sometimes look insurmountable. But our hope is not that there is a trophy that is set before us, but that there is a crown that awaits us in eternity. David's story here doesn't get any prettier, by the way. We get to this weird scene where he comes to the king of Achish, King Achish, and he pretends to be crazy so that they don't kill him because they find out, oh, that's David, David, the one that they sang about. So then he pretends like he's insane. He's drooling down his beard. He's clawing and scratching up doors. This is ugly. This seems unnecessary. It seems useless. And quite frankly, when I read it, it's uncomfortable. Again, why is it here? Well, I believe because, y'all, there isn't a lot of difference between us and David, okay? But there is one small difference. And you know the small difference? Nobody's writing about our life. That's it. 
Nobody's airing our dirty laundry out the way that David's is being aired out. And so it's important that when we read this and even when we wrestle through it, we need to realize, y'all, this ain't just good storytelling. This is the roughness and the rawness of a real life devoted to God. So what is this we're seeing in the life of David? Why does it look so ugly? Why does it look so messy? Because it's the messiness of what sanctification looks like. This is what sanctification really looks like. Again, sanctification is when we are being broken, when we are being crumbled, when we are being beaten, when we are being shattered in order to be remodeled and remolded into the image of Christ. Do you think that looks good? Do you think that feels good? The end result is beautiful, but the road to sanctification is horrific. It is a road of suffering and it is hideous. I want you to look how bad it gets, not only for David, but for Saul here. Firstly, if you haven't realized this yet, Saul is a narcissist. I like the way the Bible describes that he's sitting there under a tree and he's holding his spear. He's paranoid. He's worried. And all he can do is ruminate about what is that David boy doing? And he's angry that none of his people told him about the things that were happening. Now, it doesn't even say whether or not they knew about it or how he gets the information, but he's angry at them because of their perceived disloyalty. And we see that he is descending further and further. His moral compass is eroding even more, and he is literally out for blood. And there's this moment when Doeg, desperate to be accepted by Saul, tells him, Oh, David, I saw him with Ahimelech. You know, Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech the priest at Nob, just in case you don't know. And he knew that when he said that, that was essentially a death sentence. Priests, just in case you didn't know this, had a covenant with the king. And the covenant was that they would be loyal to the king in every situation. And the problem here is that he failed to disclose information to Saul. He broke the covenant. And breaking the covenant meant death. But let's remember... Why didn't he tell Saul? Let's, let's look back at the text. This is Saul. He's, uh, this is David. The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I have charged you. Remember, Ahimelech didn't say anything because David told him not to say anything. David lied and that lie leveraged him in a position to get what he wanted. But I want you to see what happens as a result of David's lie. Saul demands that his men kill them, but even they have more of a moral compass than the king. So they are uncomfortable with the request. And so they stand there. Nobody does anything. But then Doeg kills Every single one of them. And the Bible names it specifically. It says 85 men were dead 
because of David's sin, which led to Saul's sin, which led to Doeg's sin, right? Well, I know we've been in 1 Samuel for a while, so there are some things that we learned early on. There were some prophecies that were made. There were some things that were spoken that we probably have forgotten about that are specifically related to Eli. So I'm going to jump back and I'm going to read something that you probably don't even remember us reading. 1 Samuel 2, 32, 33. Then in distress, this is what God spoke to Eli after the sin of his sons and the sin of Eli. He says, then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And listen to this, y'all. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But then look how specific it gets. The, the only one of you, the only one of you, who's that one? Abiathar. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die at the sword of men. When we read that the first time, we, we probably didn't realize exactly what it was saying. We probably glanced over it. But look at the prophecy. And look at what happened. Now, there is hope in this that even something so gruesome, something so horrific, like the death of 85 people, does not escape the will of God. Now, I know you're thinking, Brandon, you, you were talking about beauty from ashes. This is all ashes. Ain't no beauty here. This is a mess. Where is the beauty? I'm discouraged. Well, let's look at what the Bible says about Jesus. In Isaiah 53. I'm going to read the whole thing. See if you can find the beauty in this. Isaiah prophesies, he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up from before him like a young plant, and like a root, but a root out of dry ground. He had no form. He had no majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide my portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet this is the beauty. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's beautiful. His death is beautifully gruesome because the son was crushed, was wounded, was beaten, was stricken, was hideous. So hideous that men would even hide their faces from him. Yet the ashes of his life. The wounds of his body have given us eternal life. If can't nobody make beauty out of your ashes, God can. If he can take Jesus, who was a wounded shell of himself, and on the third day bring him up in the beauty of a resurrected body and life, guess what he can do with your life? There is beauty in his death. There is beauty in that mess. And not only that, but in a beautiful demonstration, he solidified that our sin was done with because he paid the ultimate price. As bad as the life of Jesus looked was as beautiful as the salvation was that he afforded to us. And that's what he does with our mess. That's what he does with our lives. He makes them beautiful. Earlier I mentioned us being instruments that are out of tune. I want to close with this. There's an episode of Arthur where Binky is frustrated because, you know, Binky's a bully, but he plays a clarinet. And so he's frustrated because his clarinet, he says, is broken. And so the whole episode, he is begging and asking his parents to give him a new clarinet, but they can't afford it. And so he gets up there, he has this audition, and he's preparing for it, and he knows that he, i got to play this broken clarinet in front of these people for this audition. I'm not going to get this part. But he knows he has no other option. And so he gets up there in front of all these esteemed musicians and he plays through all of the off notes and all of the 
cracks that a broken clarinet would make. And he gets down, and he just hangs his head, totally dejected about what had happened, thinking, there's no way they're going to pick me. But unexpectedly, he wins the competition. And this is the thing that the judges say that I want you to think about with your own life and even someone you may know. The judge comes up to him and says, if you can make something so broken sound that good, then you must be good. Y'all, with our lives, if Christ can take us so broken, so undeserving of his righteousness, and give our purposeless, meaningless lives beauty and meaning and glory and joy, then he is good. Look, your life may be a mess. <laughs> it may not be the perfect picture of salvation you thought it would be. But if you are a Christian, let me tell you what that is. That's sanctification. That is Christ conforming you to his image. But then this is the hope for those who you may know and love, whose life may be a mess. Remember your life. Remember who you were before Christ saved you. And don't look at a single person and think, no, they're too messed up. There is no one who is too messed up, who is too low, who is too beyond that God can't reach all the way down and pull them up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. God, it is an undeniable truth. You give beauty to our lives. God, our lives are hideous. They are ugly and even shameful sometimes. God, I stand up here as a pastor and a preacher, but I can even think about what sanctification has looked like in my own life and how wickedness has prevailed at times, but how I see how you were using all of that to conform me into your image. So, God, that is my prayer for every single person here who says that they are a believer that even in the weeds, even in the mess, even in the, the sin and the hurt and the grief and the shame and the guilt. That you are conforming them to your image. God, I pray that if there is anyone who is here right now at this moment who does not know you that they can realize today that you can make a beauty out of their mess. There is no amount of messing up that they can do where you can't clean it up. And so I pray that you will give them this hope and restore our faith knowing that you will take the ashes of our life and give them beauty. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.